Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. Welcome to Saturday. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Saturday show. This weekend, Oppenheimer, the new movie by Christopher Nolan, opened in theaters. You know, if there's ever a chance or a time where you could risk being pretentious, it is having invented the atomic bomb. I spent most of my life saying, ooh, would that be too pretentious? The whole idea of being over-pretentious has kind of gone by the wayside, I think, in the last 20 years. It was an obsession of mine in the late 90s and early aughts. Now I think I see people leaning into pretension rather hard. But if there was ever a time, once more where you could say something like J. Robert Oppenheimer said in this historical quote recounting his invention. You could say it. Here we go. Let's hear from Bobby Ops. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Yes, I am become death, and now I am become Fred. Fred Kaplan, author of The Bomb, joined me in 2020 to talk about America and the nuclear bomb. We shall replay that historic interview. And also, what's the biggest contrast between the seriousness of an issue and the words used to describe it? So there, I am become death matching the severity of the issue at hand. But what about the economy, a recession, millions of people struggling with financial issues going on in the rest of the world, the United States coming out of it? Can we invent a word or a phrase that entirely diminishes the stakes and maybe even just substitutes a perfectly fine word for a silly word? So that's where my spiel on the Vibe Session comes in. Oppenheimer, Kaplan, and the Vibe Session up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. To me, nuclear bombs are a little like vinyl records. 
in that they've become almost collector's item. I mean, you know, the aficionados know they're the most powerful things out there and really the best way to listen to music slash kill a lot of people at once. But they've fallen by the wayside a little bit. Uh, In fact, if you talk to a person born after, I don't know, mid-1985 or let's say 86, they won't really take nuclear bombs seriously. Sure, there's the pro forma. Of course, we have them. Of course, they could blow up the world how many times over. What I mean is they don't feel the power and threat of nuclear bombs on a gut level. A new book by Fred Kaplan called The Bomb puts this all in perspective. It makes us realize that uh, the history of the bomb is fascinating, but most importantly, our current situation with nuclear bombs is just as dangerous as it's ever been. The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Fred Kaplan is here. Thanks for coming on again, Fred. Well, it's always a pleasure to be here, though you're pushing my buttons about the talk of vinyl records. I know. I said that on purpose (laughs) because that's like the exact Venn diagram of you and your interests. I mean, I met you 10, 20 years ago, and I knew that you were a Pulitzer Prize winner for the Boston Globe, and then I heard about your working with Les Aspen and researching nuclear weapons. But I guess back then, the big your big credit was you wrote this very important book called The Wizards of Armageddon, and up until then, no one was really taught people in the 80s were very much concerned about the bomb and the bomb and the Minuteman missile and the MX missile was a national campaign issue right and you were kind of the first person to talk about the actual the wizards of Armageddon were the people who kind of calculated kill rates and where to strike first and that hadn't happened then so what was the impact of that book how did that book change the way people looked at it well it's funny you know the title It was a provisional title. It was a joke. Uh I couldn't think of anything better. It has since become, in the lexicon, you go to conferences of strategists, they talk about, well, we wizards of Armageddon, without quotation marks or even irony. Yeah. It's like the best and the the brightest. They like like being, they they don't understand the the oxymoron of of wizards of Armageddon. So it's true. I mean, you know, I had been taught it in grad school by one of these wizards. And I realized, man, this guy is unknown. Stories he's telling me are unknown. So I went and interviewed everybody, about 160 people. And that was also the heyday of the Freedom of Information Act. I got thousands of documents declassified, some of which I'm told have been reclassified uh-huh. since. So this, you mean you could get a copy of your book from like the 86 printing and it has stuff in there that now the government I, th- has, I think that's right. Wow. 83 book actually. Yeah, but, yeah. but the bomb is different. The bomb, it tells some of the same story, although brought up to date obviously, yeah. but also from the viewpoint of the policymakers, of the decision makers. Right. When I wrote Wizards of Armageddon, it came out in 83, There was almost nothing that had been declassified, for example, about what John Kennedy personally thought or said about nuclear weapons. Or how he tapped his teeth together when he was very concerned with the 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 secret tapes, Mm -hmm. which we now all know about. Mm -hmm. They weren't out yet. People didn't even know they existed. A lot of it is based on archival stuff that's been recently declassified. And the later stuff, especially about the Obama and Trump administrations, is from interviews with people. And it is told through presidents. And generally speaking, and they all had different circumstances, they all had different weaponry available to them. They all had different enemies, or at least the Soviet Union was at different levels of strength. But I saw continuity and not too much difference between the strategies of Eisenhower, Kennedy, LBJ, even through Nixon. I didn't see so vastly different take on how to use nuclear weapons as a deterrence. Here's the thing, and this is true up till now. There's sort of parallel lines here. 
On the one hand, you have the military, especially strategic command, as it's now called, and the people who look at this stuff in the joint staff. They've been running along pretty much the same path forever. Yeah. And during the, the holiday from history that you mentioned about, like from the end of the Cold War on when nobody paid any attention to this, we didn't know what was going on, but it was. Well, was it in a disquieting way? Is this the real deep state who is uh, pursuing their agenda? No, it's not the deep state, but look, there's somebody who's been, we all know there are nuclear weapons. Somebody's yeah. in control of it. Right. Somebody's making plans for their use if they have to be used. Right. We don't know anything about it. We don't, we dismiss it as as improbable. Right. But then there are the presidents, and there have been several presidents who have confronted crises where they have to start thinking about this. And most of them haven't really thought about it before at all. Mm -hmm. And why should they? Then they're given the briefings. They're presented with the options. And most of the presidents that we know about look at this and they say, no way am I doing this. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There might be a guy in the Pentagon saying, you know, like in Dr. Strangelove, I'm not going to say our hair doesn't get messed up, but 10, 20 million tops. Yeah. You know, it's tailed Or the real guy who said if there are two Americans and one Russian left, we win. (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the commanders of Strategic Air Command in 1960. Wow. So the presidents look at this and they say, no, I don't think we want to do that. And that has come, and Kennedy was a clear example, and even Eisenhower and Nixon and others, they looked at these options very, very closely. The difference now, and this is what makes the book pertinent, I think, and why I was driven to to write this book, because I didn't think I would ever write another book about nuclear war, Mm -hmm. is that Trump is not known to be a guy who looks into the details of things, who thinks through the implications. In the Cold War, there used to be a a concept, kind of a a fright figure known as the clever briefer. Mm -hmm. Somebody who would brief Khrushchev or whoever, Brezhnev, whoever, and was a clever briefer and would convince him that, yeah, Mr. Premier, there is a way that we launched at this time with these weapons against these targets, we could pull it off. And the fear is that Trump who has a very cavalier notion toward nuclear weapons to begin with. <laughs> and no cleverness about and him. And doesn't yes. look into these things deeply, seems to be among every president you can think of since Hiroshima, the guy who is most susceptible to the clever briefer. Definitely most susceptible. Yeah. Yeah, it would seem. Um, and also a guy who, you know, just hires from Fox News. So maybe John Bolton does whatever he does as essentially a mole in the State Department during the Bush administration, right. and he's That's useful right. three levels down. But my God, to to uh, appoint him to the yes. level of National Security Advisor, you've invited the clever briefer inside the tent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, that's, and, you know, speaking of which, I mean, when I first came up with this idea, I thought I would call it fire and fury, but then I was preempted on that. For, right. <laughs> but when, what isn't still known, and what I learned when interviewing some people for this book, is that during that period of fire and fury, when, you know, Trump was saying, you know, if, not if the North Koreans attack us, mm-hmm. we'll respond, which, you know, that's par for That's doctrine, and it's useful yes. to, but for them to think if that. if they keep talking bad about us and if they start testing weapons and missiles we will unleash fire and fury like the earth has never seen what isn't known is that at that time there was serious war planning going on against north korea a new kind of war plan that included the use of nuclear weapons that 
laid out scenarios that for the first time did not assume the first step being, say, North Korea invading South Korea. No, it was North Korea launching a provocative missile uh-huh. as a test or something, and we respond accordingly. And in that year, the North Koreans conducted 15 missile launches. During all of them, there was a conference call among all the four stars who were involved. in The, the kind of conference call there would be if there was warning of a Soviet missile attack in mm-hmm. the old days. In a couple of cases... General Mattis, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, if it looked like a peculiar test, he had the authority to order the firing of ballistic missiles, not nuclear, Mm -hmm. but conventional ballistic missiles that were in South Korea against the North Korean test site. And though nothing was said about this explicitly, the hope was that it would not only destroy the test site, but maybe some North Korean officials who happened to be watching it, because Kim Jong-un was known to go watch some of these things. And on two occasions, he actually fired, ordered the firing of missiles, not inside North Korea, but out toward the Sea of Japan in parallel with the North Korean missiles. And the South Koreans joined him. And so this was this joint show of force, like you're testing a missile, we're we're putting our missiles into the sea. And by the way, that's new reporting because I hadn't heard that before. New report. Good job. And (laughs) and, uh, yeah, I've been doing this for a while. Then uh, also, some options in this war plan included what some people later described as a bloody nose, Mm -hmm. where basically you punch him in the the nose and he bleeds and Kim Jong-un will be so wiped out by this, that he'll retreat. Well, that was an option. But most of the military people, including those who knew something about Korea, thought, okay, but it's actually more likely that he's going to retaliate. And if that happens, you know, I mean, the Seoul, capital of South Korea, is within range of hundreds of chemical missiles and uh, U.S. personnel. There was thinking that an escalation that began even with this firing of conventional missiles on the test site, which Mattis had been authorized to do on his own cognizance if he wanted, that that could lead to war and all the way up to nuclear war. This yeah. is, there was when, when when Trump, in other words, when Trump made that line about fire and fury. This was after we. Th- this had was been not. This missiles. was not <laughs> one of his typical blustering off the top of his head kinds of remarks. This was. There was serious stuff going on yeah. behind that. What you said, I think, would strike a listener as, yes, that's true and troubling. But actually, it's interesting to me that every one of those clauses contains an agenda item that serious people have thought about for a long, long time. For instance, you said, you know, the North Koreans have biological weapons. Well, that alone, that's a conundrum because we understand what to do or the United States has a doctrine of what to do if you're attacked or someone is attacked with a nuclear weapon, you can respond with a nuclear weapon. But what about a biological weapon? And Obama had to figure something out on that. That's right. Obama, when he first came in, remember, he came in He gave this speech talking about reducing the role of nuclear weapons in national security policy, somewhere down the road, eliminating them from the face of the earth, maybe not in his lifetime, but we will take concrete steps toward that kind of thing. One of the things he considered was getting rid of the first use policy. Now, most people don't realize this, but since the beginning, we have an explicit policy, and every president has approved it, of having the option to use nuclear weapons before anybody else does. And the reason for this initially was, well, if the Soviets invade Western Europe and our troops can't take them, we have nuclear weapons. And that is 
even if they don't do this, this is the deterrent. This is yeah. the ultimate deterrent. And in fact, any time any previous president talked about getting rid of those nuclear weapons during the Cold War, the French and the Germans would go nuts. Yeah, like, yeah. Carter wanted to do it, and oh he was convinced God. because not that the Americans didn't convince him, the NATO allies no, convinced him. No, no, yeah. they didn't. They, it was terrible. There was a part in the book that got me a little worried. I forgot what it was. You'll remember that. Obama was considering a plan. I think they adopted it. And it turns out that the Carter administration had already been through this all and just named it a very oh, boring well that, thing. Well, that, that had to do with uh, the no first use idea. Yeah. Obama came up with a very interesting spin on this. He goes, when Gates told him, well, we, we might have to uh, go first if we're attacked by biological. He goes, okay. You know, he played law professor at University of Chicago. He said, okay, what countries do we really have to worry about here? Well, there's Russia, there's North Korea, there's Iran at the time, yeah. maybe Syria, you know, who knows. And so he whittled it down. He said, okay, well, how about if we do this? And this became a declaration. We will not use nuclear weapons first against a country that doesn't have nuclear weapons and that has signed the non-proliferation treaty. Throughout the book, the idea that using nuclear weapons as a deterrent against another nuclear state, but the situation we see ourselves in now is using conventional weapons as a deterrent to a state about to acquire nuclear weapons. And so far, the United States and its allies have done some clever Uh, surreptitious things to try to thwart states from getting nuclear weapons, but never the full-scale war, the full-scale invasion. Do you think that that could happen? Well, you know, Trump has stated it as a threat several times. And by the way, you know, even Obama said, we will not allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Uh, You know, he, he negotiated his way out of it. Everybody has said that. What if it happens? Yeah. What if it happens? You know, you make all these threats, why has it not happened? Well, I think part of it really is deterrence. I, I think the existence of nuclear weapons probably has prevented a few wars from taking out. Even even nuclear disarmament people believe that. It, it does, hey, throws a little scare into you before you start messing around with something that might escalate all the way. Fred Kaplan is the national security columnist for Slate, the author of six books now, the latest being The Bomb, President's Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. And now the spiel. The vibe session is over. Americans are starting to feel it. No, this is not a story about Lionel Hampton. I have to say that rather than starting to feel that a vibe session was over, I was just alerted to this concept of a vibe session in today's Washington Post via that headline. Writer Heather Long notes, quote, this summer could mark the ending of the vibe session, the term that has taken hold to explain why so many Americans give the economy a failing grade despite a half century low in unemployment. Wait, it had taken hold? That term had taken hold? Beyond that headline, well, it was mentioned one other time. One other original mention of the Vibe session, and then a couple references to that headline. It was in the New York Post, whereas Kyla Scanlon had a piece titled, The Vibes in the Economy Are Weird, Really Weird. And in it, Scanlon writes, quote, There is no recession yet. Right now, we were in a Vibe session of sorts, a period of declining expectations that people are feeling based 
on both real-world worries and past experiences. At the time of that column, Scanlon was a 24-year-old financial writer who had a big Substack following and an even bigger TikTok following in which she discusses macroeconomic concepts in the idiom of her generation and the medium. Here she is discussing bank yields on TikTok. There's like a whole thing about deposit betas and how consumers just don't move money because they're kind of like, ah. But there shouldn't really be a world where treasuries, which are U.S. government debt, are yielding more than what people are making on their savings account. It just doesn't make sense. It's not quite one-to-one, but banks should never be perceived as less risky than the U.S. government. And the yield situation right now kind of gives that vibe. Again, with the vibe. Saying vibes about things... The vibes are off, or we're in a vibe shift. It's quite popular right now. It hints at a more solid concept. It's attractive to a generation that often doesn't like more than hinting at concepts. Putting their arms squarely around a statement seems to be anathema to them. If I may take my old guy, just say something, damn it. Vibe. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the vibe session, it was also a synonym for a familiar concept that sounds... Eh, less fun. That sounds, the familiar concept does, more formal. And that concept is sentiment. Everything in these headlines and in the analysis about vibes could just be replaced by talk of sentiment. And then you'd be discussing the economy in terms consistent with the ways people have discussed and understood the economy for years. In fact, in the Washington Post column introducing the fun, flirty, econ-fluid-seeming phrase vibe session, It then immediately pivots to the phenomenon that we've always measured, sentiment. Quote, this summer could end up marking the end of the vibe session, the term that has taken hold to explain why so many Americans give the economy a failing grade despite a half century low in unemployment. Sentiment is finally improving. The latest University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index just notched its largest gain since 2006. Morning consult shows a steady uptick in sentiment since January. To be clear, both indicators remain well below pre-pandemic levels, but sentiment looks less like it did during the Great Recession and more like the early 2010s, a period known for slow growth. There's nothing wrong with introducing a term or a word that will actually communicate more meaningfully or appeal to a population that would maybe like to learn but is too put off by all the formality of technical terms. But sentiment? Is sentiment so bad? Do we gain much of anything by calling lagging sentiment a vibe session? Maybe. I mean, I don't know if I need it in a newspaper, but younger people, they don't touch the paper of the newspaper. They might see it online, get their news from TikTok, and you got to communicate it in a way that people understand, I guess. But there is a little more of a downside to vibe session and words like it. There is a trend of inventing terms, but these terms describe trends that don't really exist. The terms are so fun, flirty, and fluid that no one, or at least the people who bandy about the terms don't want to really examine them and say, oh, this thing that we're telling ourselves, this story that we're using to make meaning and guide us through life could be a work of fiction or, to put it more bluntly, a lie. There was the great resignation, which didn't actually happen. There was quiet quitting, which was theretofore known as working, but not very hard. And then I heard about this form of visiting Europe. They call it revenge tourism. Travel with a vengeance to get back at two years of pandemic. What? Okay, I guess if that American guy who graffitied the Roman Colosseum did it in solidarity with his Christian ancestors eaten by lions, maybe... 
But also, that didn't happen. The Lions, the Christians, and that wasn't why the American guy put his graffiti on the Coliseum. So I say stop, just stop. The economy, it is true, has gotten much more polarized, or at least the perception of the economy has gotten much more polarized along partisan lines. And there is out there in America general malaise, sometimes called doomerism, which is actually a useful phrase, which explains why actually improving conditions are not always or often seen as conditions that are improving. And that is captured in the concept of sentiment, which is turning around sentiment is. And this is terribly important for all the talk of the trailing fact or the vibrations of the universe being misaligned with the individual chakras of people. Take note of this. From April 21 to April 23, those two years, inflation was much higher than people's wages. People didn't just feel worse off. They definitely were worse off. They were falling behind. They could buy less. But as of May, workers' pay in the U.S. started to grow faster than inflation. So was this a vibe session or was that analysis, meaning kind of a duh bit of analysis? I would say that people didn't feel better off when they weren't better off. And now that they are better off, it's likely they'll start feeling better off. Of course, all of this, all of those trends could one day be undone by the lurking behemoths of mojoflation or the dreaded harshing of the National Mellow Reserve. We are waiting for the next jobs numbers to drop from the hype beasts over at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And of course, Jerome Powell will also be waiting in, guiding the economy, which can cause us to ask 25 basis points. Is that so not even still a thing? And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara has become death as producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson has also become death as senior producer of The Gist. Join us Monday when we all become death together. See you then.